Hello and welcome to the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. You are listening to The Mason Jar. I'm David Kern and I'm here with Cindy Rollins. Cindy, how's it going? It's going very well, David. Thank you. Uh, so we're here to talk Charlotte Mason, all things Charlotte Mason. We're here to answer listener questions. It's, it's that listener question episode that we do each month. And we've got uh, several good questions from listeners. Uh, you put out the call on the Mere Motherhood Facebook group and several que- several people uh, put questions on there. So I like that method. I think that's a great way to get the conversation going. Yeah, it went really well. We got plenty of questions, and um, we're going to be recording. I'm not going to answer any narration questions today because that's a huge topic that we cover a lot, but we are going to have a guest that's going to cover that with some handouts um, coming up pretty soon. Nice. So I'm excited about that. Nice, nice. So um, this is going to go up the middle of March, probably about March 15th. That's the goal to get it up tomorrow, March 15th. We're recording on the 14th. Um, if you have not... Uh, seen that Facebook page, head over to Facebook and in the search bar, just type in Mere Motherhood and that group should come up and you can put the, you can click the request to be added and we'll add you on that. Um, and then also if you have not signed up to receive the Mere Motherhood newsletter yet, head over to CerseiInstitute.com or MereMotherhood.com and you can enter your email in there to receive the monthly uh, email newsletter that goes out. That includes a quick, you know, little reflection from you, Cindy, and sometimes a recipe or a poem or um, you know, any number of different kinds of things. It's a fun little thing we've been doing and lots of good feedback. So, uh, do you have any hints about what might show up on the March issue? Um, yeah, well, I'm looking for a good recipe and I'm going to try to make sure I do it properly and put the right amounts in, not, not, um, um, cause I don't cook with recipes very much anymore because <laughs> unless I'm doing something new. Yeah. So yeah. it's hard for me to take these old recipes I've been using for years and, and try to figure out how they once looked on paper. <laughs> but, um, but so we'll, we'll do something like that. And we have some, uh, some, some other things going in there. So, so you, looking... you cook mostly from memory. Pretty much with some of the things, some of the old fate, the things that have ended up becoming family favorites. I definitely do them from memory. I very rarely get the recipe out. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you tweak them ever? Oh yeah. 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 I mean, if I have something or don't have something, you know, if I'm going to use uh, milk instead of cream, if I don't have any, you know, Heavy. I, I I use a lot of heavy whipped cream. Well, that's because butter that's, and that's sugar. The French cooking, you right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, you know, the truth is, it just makes everything taste better. And for boys, it's more filling. So, oh, yeah, um, yeah. and when you have family coming over, usually we have a lot of people. So the more cream you use, <laughs> goes makes the it go satisfied Everybody is. Yeah. Hey, I uh, I'm just fine with this idea. I always have heavy cream, lots of butter. You know. Yeah, yeah. You can't go wrong with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, all right, well, we're here to answer some questions. But first, we need to quickly talk about the uh, Children's Literature Challenge, which we're doing right now. Um, we are uh, in the down to the final eight. That bracket is down to the final eight. We started with 32 b- children's books, and um, now we're down to eight uh, as of this recording. I think by the time this goes up, people will still be able to vote in the final eight. So, yeah, I saw that. I didn't realize it was so low already. I felt a little disappointed that I could only do like four votes now. Yeah, I know. It's a little bit. Um, it's a little bit uh, disappointing once you uh, once you're used to voting for thirty two books. Once it gets down, you just feel like a little. It feels a little bit. Uh, take very long. <laughs> yeah, you don't have. It's not as painful anymore. Well, maybe it's still painful. It's just less. It's it less is less painful, painful. Less times. Less painful because you. The realities 
um, are what they are. And um, <laughs> yeah, there were some pretty painful matchups in that. I don't know who you say it's random, so we can't blame you. You don't you don't actually get to take the fall for the, the terrible matchups <laughs> or. What well, was the okay. Anna Green Gables? Anna Green Gables and Charlotte's Web at the first round. So I, I, I explained this a little bit on Close Reads, uh, but for oh, people okay. that don't listen to Close Reads. So what we do is it, – it's random, but what we do is we, we kind of choose the different books and we, we kind of put them in tiers. And then we match them up against each other based on the tiers. But so once they're we, – we do – it's not random in as much as we choose them what tiers they should go in. But then it is random at that point. So we didn't go – we didn't set out to put Charlotte's Web up against – you know, uh, uh, of Green Gables, or yeah. we didn't set out to have Farmer Boy against Little House of the Prairie in the second round. Yeah, that was a weird one. And I think, I feel like Farmer Boy should have won that round. I'm just going to say. I, I, I totally agree with you on that. I think it makes sense that a lot of people, you know, voted Little House because it's, I mean, the series is called Little House of the Prairie. So yeah, yeah. It seems like that one should win, but really, um, I think there are a couple other that's not the strongest book in that that series. Yeah, and so boy is very strong. When it came to, to it came to series, one thing we decided was we weren't going to put a whole series in there because it's kind of you have to measure that differently than a single book. So we chose, you know, like we chose a couple of the Lord of the I mean, the um, Chronicles of Narnia books, a couple of Little House, and we just tried to find books that were kind of representative of the series. And of course, the a big debate we had here in the office was Little House of the Prairie versus the Little House of the Big Woods, and ultimately the vote yeah. went Little House of the Prairie. Partly because of its iconic status, but I agree. Farmer Boy is one of my fav. Farmer Boy is either my favorite or one of my three favorite children's books ever. So yeah, I agree with me too. And I Little Britches got knocked out early. Yeah, that's and a tough that, one. I mean, I like Swiss Family Robinson, but I think for me, Little Britches could have been the number one book, and I wouldn't hurt my feelings at all yeah, if it had won everything. So yeah. I think uh, it's just a familiarity uh, thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not as well known. And um, and then the other one, I think I felt like I had to vote against The Hobbit or Winnie the Pooh, but I didn't, did I? I was thinking I, that um, was my... Winnie the Pooh was up against A Wrinkle in Time, and then The Hobbit was up against The Phantom Tollbooth. Okay, and then what was the second Winnie the Pooh matchup? Uh, um, the, Lo- the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Yeah, that was tough because yeah, yeah, I me too. I love when you the Voyage of the Dawn Treader is definitely my favorite uh, chronicle of Narnia. Me too. But uh, but I really when he, I I I think I ended up voting for Winnie the Pooh because I felt like I'd read that more and if I had to choose today which one to read I would always enjoy reading Winnie the Pooh. So yeah, Winnie the Pooh is amazing. I love that book so much. That's that's one of my other two favorite children's books. I don't know what my third one would be. Uh, yeah, that's a tough one. I, I, yeah, that, that so it was very painful, but it always is. So I guess that's just the nature of beast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now we're down to so the final eight. If people want to go vote, is the Hobbit up against the Voyage of the Dawn Treader? And early on there, the Hobbit is winning by eighteen votes, um, which is interesting. And then we also <laughs> have the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe up against Anne of Green Gables. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is likely to win that one, I would think. And then we have Little House in the Prairie up against the Secret Garden, and the Secret Garden is winning by three votes on that one. That's interesting. Wow, I'm not a fan of uh, Burnett, so I'm shocked that she her books made or made it that far. I mean, I don't think they're terrible; they're enjoyable, but I don't think they're iconic. I guess yeah, so. is lasting. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah. I know my kids love Secret Garden, but not as much as they love the Narnia books. Yeah, oh, now yeah. I have boys. That's interesting. Yeah, it is a good book. I, I I think they're good books. I just don't think they're you know up there. 
Yeah, yeah. I guess Angelina will probably have a heart attack if Anna Green Gables wins the, <laughs> the whole thing. Wouldn't that be weird? <laughs> Uh, I mean, that that would be pretty hilarious, actually. And then the last matchup is The Wind and the Willows is beating Treasure Island right now. Uh, oh, and I love both of those books. I love The Wind and the Willows, so I, I would have to vote Wind and the Willows, even though I just finished reading Treasure Island and I enjoyed it. So if form holds right now, it would be Wind and the Willows against The Secret Garden and The Hobbit versus The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the final round. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, or in the I final could, four, I guess. Not the final yeah, round. I could see the Hobbit winning it all, but um, I'm probably going to vote for the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. I think that I would probably vote for the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe too. But anyway, um, head over if people want to vote. Head over to SourceyInstitute.com. Uh, you can find it on the Facebook page. It's kind of all over the place for our stuff right now, and uh, you know, on our different social media platforms and things like that. Um, I think there's a link on Instagram as well. Um, so that's that's a fun little exercise we've been we've been doing. For, yeah, it's a sure way friends. to lose your, lose friends here. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great point. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so let's talk let's talk about some questions here. We got to answer some some listener questions. So up first, we have this question: How do we measure Charlotte Mason's ideals by our realities? Yeah, I kind of um, paraphrase that question from taking a bunch of questions that girls had written in the question um, on, on the Mere Motherhood Facebook page, because a lot of people were, you know, I think right now in the Charlotte Mason community, there is kind of a panic going through is um, every there's a lot of um, talk about what's pure Charlotte Mason and what's not pure Charlotte Mason. Yeah. And, and and, and it, I, I feel like it's really undermining moms and causing them to panic and feel like, well, obviously, you know, what I'm doing isn't isn't good enough because the realities of my life, um, where, where did they show up? And and Charlotte Mason certainly doesn't talk about the laundry or the dentist or, you know, all the things that come up um, in our daily lives that that as a mother teaching your children at home, um, you, you have to deal with. But I do think one of the things you know, I'm coming from my own experience completely. I, I read for the children's sake. And then I read um, Charlotte Mason's series several times over the course of raising my kids. And I basically was working on my own salvation uh, with those volumes. So I am not here to be a Charlotte Mason purist or to say, if you really, really want to be Charlotte Mason, you have to do it this way or doing that way. I'm really the person that's just saying, hey, you know, I tried, this is what I did in my family, trying to be true to her principles as I saw them. And in some things, I didn't do the things that she said, because I didn't completely, it took me a long time to really understand them. So I feel like now moms are coming along, and we have this whole new reality of what it means to teach in a Charlotte Mason way. And there's a lot more information out there than there has been. Um, I'm not completely sure that's going to be in the best interest of um, everyone because uh, there's just so much out there that it can be really, really confusing and, and it can cause you to feel insecure about what you're doing or, or to question whether you're really Charlotte Mason. And I, I just find that to steals a lot of in, emotional energy that it's unnecessary. So, so yeah, so when, when, so for me, I of course tweaked, everything I, I filtered of Charlotte Mason through the lens of having a large family and not having a lot of um, handholding um, that, that 
that is out there now. And the thing, the thing is with a large family, there are different realities. There's, you know, um, morning time was one way that I coped with the fact that I did have a large family and I was trying to enact Charlotte Mason's ideals. And that's really where that came from. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think the number one thing, the, the mom in a large family or the mom that has a lot of interruptions, maybe, maybe it's a mom with a handicapped child or a mom that has some extra burdens that everybody else doesn't have, um, not just a large family. But the whole idea of short lessons is, is very, very freeing, and it should help us to enact Charlotte Mason's um, principles in our home a little bit more easily than we would um, if we if we're just saying, you know, let's get this whole um, Latin lesson in. You know, I'm going to have an, two hours of or I'm going to have an hour and a half of lesson uh, Latin twice a week um, rather than what if I what if I just did Latin every day as a habit or a routine and I did it um, in t- 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 20 minutes every day instead of doing it um, in these huge chunks of time where we're getting it done, we're getting it done. Um, but, but we're not, um, but that's about all we can, we can say. We're really struggling in our time um, with all the expectations of what it means to educate. You know, we all have come out of this schooling situation where um, you sit in a desk and you sit down and you read and you write in a certain way. And that's what education is. And when you're a mom of a large family, it can be very, very discouraging to feel like that's not happening in your home. And um, so those are the realities that we have to face. And I think that Charlotte Mason is perfect for that situation because morning time really does take a lot of that and make it work. And uh, morning time to me is just an out, a born out of Charlotte Mason's ideas and all of her other ideas about how to deal with skill work come, come out of that also. So um, we, we do have these realities. Um, I used to say that a really uh, one good year of homeschooling can make up for two bad years. <laughs> I, I held on to that and I hope that turned out to be true. But you can get when you're having a good day um, or a good week, you know, just give it all you have and and, and work on your school when when, you know, make hay while the sun shines. And then when these other things come up that interrupt your school, um, you know, there's not a whole lot we can do about most of those things. Most of those things are life and we are families. We're not just schools. So we have to deal with them. And and I think as long as we're faithful, when we can be faithful, then we can just relax and rest in the idea that um, education is going to take place amongst the the, the laundry. Huh. So we have actually have a follow-up question that I think – or we have a question that I think could be a good follow-up to this round. Okay. Um, and it's, it's about priorities. So this person asks, on a day when time is short for whatever reason – do I do morning time or skill work? So particularly with children that are not yet independent. And she says that she believes skill work is important, but you know, for the long haul, what is the most beneficial thing to do? Uh, so would you say that prioritizing morning time, do you agree with her that prioritizing morning time is, is probably the thing to do when, when you're busy? Like that that's, if you have to prioritize something, that's what you want to do. 
Absolutely. I absolutely think that you should prior prioritize morning time. Skills are things that we, we're going to pick up along the way, and, and they're always going to be available to us. Um, when we want to learn how to tie our shoes, it doesn't take a whole lot of time to do that. Um, we can um, spend weeks and months, you know, even potty training. If you want to talk about some skills that we think of, um, you know, you can you can spend months or years potty training a child or you can put that off until the child is actually ready and it takes a, a, a lot less time. Yeah. And I think I think the skill the skill work it it takes a little this is where um the mom's instincts need to kick in and decide you know am i pushing on a skill on the child and really when you're pushing a skill on a child that a child's not ready for you're wasting a lot of time so um if you if you could get brave and you can hone your instincts to see when the time is right for a child and sometimes it's just trial and error you 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 pull out the phonics you start working with the child and they just stare dumbly at you um week morning after morning after morning they don't remember you you put it away you don't just keep pushing 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 you put it away um so skill work is always going to be there and, and it's finite I think that's why it, it's a skill. Um, it's it doesn't go um, on. In the meantime, when the child um, is not learning the skill, they're being filled with all the things they're going to bring to the skill in a different way. Um, the the thinking and the thought processing. So you don't want to leave out morning time. Um, you're gonna morning time's going to go by the wayside plenty of times. I, I, you know, I, I say maybe one third or even one half of the morning, something will happen. Yeah. You know, you never know what's going to interrupt morning time, but if you make it a priority, then it, that'll happen a lot less. And then when you have that going and, and maybe you can shorten it a little bit when, if it's been week, if it's weeks and weeks and weeks and all you're doing is morning time and you're not getting to any math and you're not getting to, you know, any of your other skill work, uh, then maybe you want to um, think twice about, um, cutting morning time down or this girl makes a really good point she, can you incorporate that into morning time now grammar is something I talk about in the handbook of morning time and you can definitely incorporate grammar into morning time because if you do grammar in morning time over a long period of time it really cuts down on the time you have to spend in a grammar workbook later on when the kids are older and they're more ready for grammar somebody else Another question related to this is somebody asked, do you ever add geography in the morning time and what would that look like? Have you ever done that? Yeah, I think geography is perfect for morning time. And what the way I did it, and this isn't, um, is um, I, I made sure all my kids had small paperback atlases. And at one time, I don't know where to find these right now, but everybody, you can find a, a personal atlas pretty much um, now. It's just, I had these ones that I really, really liked and they were just put together with staples, but everybody had one. And when we started morning time, they would have it with them. And then anytime something came up in morning time that had a ge geographical, you know, connection, we could stop and say, well, let's look that up in the atlas. And, okay. and I think that was, I loved when we did that. We did that, you know, towards, I would say the end of the middle morning time years. Um, and that ended up being one of the best 
things that we did. And the kids really enjoyed that. For one thing, that's kind of a way to give them a little break um, from, you know, the thinking, 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 oh, now, you know, we're going to look something up in the Atlas. And and most people enjoy that. Um, Atlases are a lot of fun. And you can kind of connect things, the dots to where, uh, you know, other things you've learned, too. So after a while, they get to know the atlas really well. If every time you get a chance, you say, well, let's look that up in the atlas. So morning time is a great place for doing that. At our schoolhouse now, we have a big map on the wall. Now, we did last year in our room, we had this map on the wall that had magnets and, you know, I didn't even have to ask my student. The minute I said a name of a place, he'd go, where is that? Where is that, Miss Cindy? And he'd jump up and you know, uh-huh. try to put it on the map somewhere. So that was another way you could do it. If you, and then in that way, you could do um, some, you know, if you had a lot of magnets, you could start, you know, seeing the big picture. So either one of those things are ways to do geography in morning time. And I, and there's always the songs. You can always sing. You know, you yeah. can always take time to learn some geography songs. I still know, you know, the Middle East song that we sang during the, um, I guess, what was that, the Iraq War? <laughs> <laughs> hey, so I have a question. So obviously uh, atlases are better for when you have older kids that can read and look up things and things like that. But uh, my kids love to do these puzzles. Um, I can't remember the brand name, the company that does them right now. But they, they love puzzles, and they are to the point now where they almost only like to do these puzzles that are maps. And they're these really awesome illustrated maps. There's one of the world, one of Africa, one of North America, I guess, one of Europe. And so sometimes if they're being read to or whatever, you know, we'll let them do puzzles and or color. And they love doing these geographic maps or coloring or or even coloring pictures from like a coloring book coloring book that is maps um and we found that they've learned so much out of it because they'll ask us you know where something is or if something pops up and something we're talking about or reading or whatever they can they can we can say hey look that's where that is or like they know that my sister lives in uganda so they know that um they know where that is on the map and and they naturally as they're doing them they start seeing you know, the maps have examples of animals, illustrated animals from a different part of the world. Or So as they're doing those 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 uh, puzzles, you know, they have all these questions that they're asking. And it's just coming – their own curiosity is leading them to ask questions, which then in turn lead them to, you know, ask us for the information. And so they learn so much just by, by interacting with them like that. And I could see something – like you said before, doing things like puzzles or Legos while doing morning time reading – is a good thing. And we found oh, that absolutely, it yeah. kind of, you know, from a utilitarian perspective, it kind of doubles up there for you. <laughs> yeah. For the really, little kids. That's, I think that's a perfect example of a way the kids can keep themselves busy while listening to books and coloring a map or coloring, um, or, or, or putting together a puzzle. Um, somehow it seems like that would be a distraction, but I think for boys, especially that appeals to them in such a way that they're able to listen better when they're doing something like that. I've even found that like in church, our kids, our kids learn way more stuff when they've been coloring or something than if they just, yeah. I don't know exactly how that works, but it seems to work with my kids. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I don't know why that is either. And I, 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 I was, I didn't, I wish I'd let my kids do more of that. And, um, and, in church because we were like, no, you're just going to sit there. And, um, I think they would have been far better off, um, you know, entertaining their minds, um, while they paid attention at that 
Sorry. Now I'm making a lot of noise because Max was disturbing me. <laughs> um, I'm trying to figure out, trying to remember what this brand is, but you know, there's lots of puzzles out there and some of them are just like from Disney movies or whatever, but these, is it Melissa and Doug? Is it, um... I, it, it, Melissa and Doug, I think might be what it is, but a lot of Melissa and Doug puzzles aren't that. No, they aren't nice. as detailed. Maybe Ravensburger. Uh, I'm going to look it up and post it in the show notes because these are really, really nice. And you can get them on Amazon. My wife gets them on Amazon for pretty good prices. And we get them. They're great Christmas gifts. And they come in these um, tubes that with a handle on them. And so they're, they're really easy for the kids oh, wow. to clean That's up. Not, yeah, definitely something I'd want to get for my grandkids. Yeah, and a lot of them are like the best. They have ones that have, you know, 30, 50, 100 pieces. My kids are at that point now where they love like 250-piece puzzles, which is great for yeah. that four to six years old. And they've got enough detail on them to where it takes a little – actually, they actually have to use their brain, but they also could do them over and over again and not get really bored with them. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So my kids almost every day in the morning – if they're not coloring when we come out for breakfast, they're they're doing these puzzles, and so they're they're really really good for that kind of thing. Yeah, I'll ask yeah. my wife, and she'll be able to tell me what they are. Well, Alex used to love puzzles, and he got them every year for Christmas, and then everybody was getting him puzzles, and then one day he was just <laughs> he grew up. <laughs> yeah, he stopped wanting them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, so we have one more question here, um, and this question is: What should I do with children? who are not motivated by schoolwork, by completion, by finishing well. So this person says that her 13-year-old son in particular is incredi incredibly easily distracted by anything and everything, she says, and struggles to complete the bare minimum on assignments. Surely he is not the only student who struggles with lack of motivation. I'm going to go ahead and answer that last part for you and say he is definitely not the only student who struggles with lack of motivation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. I think this is particularly, I don't think it's only a boy problem, but I think that a lot of moms see it in their boys. Um, if you go, I, I was watching a friend of mine, we went out to lunch and she was telling me about this video she had seen about the war on boys by uh, Christina Hoff Summers. Uh, she's written a book, The War on Boys. And she has this little video up about boys and she talks about how our schools, you know, are not set up for boys. They're, they're set up for girls. So, um, um, our schools basically treat boys like defective girls. And I don't think that's just our public schools. I think this is our whole system. And even at home, when we have certain kinds of schoolwork, you know, we want our boys to be motivated and we want them um, to pay attention and not be distracted, but they, they get distracted easily and they're not and they're not as motivated as we sometimes like to see because we're we're kind of trying to put them in this box to say you learn when you sit here and you you know concentrate and what we're talking about today is that sometimes they are learning when they don't look like they're learning and so in that situation i think this is back again to the idea of short lessons if your son if you go to your son and he, he's going to be immediately distracted out of the box if he sees he has this huge amount of work to do. Yes. And, and and he right away, he's not even going to try. He's going to shut down. So I feel like it's better to go to boys with um, – you may have a huge amount of work for him to do, but maybe you can give it to him in smaller doses. Say, well, right now I would just like you to read two pages in your science lesson and come back and talk to me about it. You don't have to tell him, you know, we're going to do this study guide when we're done or anything like that. Then give him – start – so then let him – you know, and also we want to make sure that we have lots of – 
um, time during the day. So he, so he reads the two pages in his science book. He comes back and maybe he does something more physical. And then now, now obviously this is hard on mom, um, or you can do it as a list, but just make sure that this, that the list is broken down into smaller sections and that the child know has some things in between that are restful for him to do or, and, and by restful, I mean, maybe go outside, maybe, um, the, I think boys really, really need a lot of physical movement and to, to trap them in the house with, you know, a stack of work, it, it, it's, it's, they do shut down and they do get distracted by everything and they don't, you know, set their minds to do the work. And it's really, really hard to make someone have motivation when they don't have it. So I think the first line of defense is to, um, to make sure you're not overwhelming them with the amount of work you're giving them right out of the starting gate. And, and to be sensitive to the fact that your son might be different. He might like different things. So when you're letting him read books and when you might require him to read certain books for school, but you're also going to be sensitive if he ends up liking like Tintin or maybe some comic book type books. Um, that's not the end of the world. Um, a lot it, it, Boys are different than girls. And sometimes they enjoy those nonfiction-y type um, books. Um, and, and they might not enjoy as much of the, you know, the literature that uh, that that we want them to enjoy. Um, so we have to introduce it in smaller amounts in order to kind of wet the palate. Um, we have to make sure we aren't um, attacking the palate. We are um, because a boy will definitely shut down under that situation. Now, there is a book that um, Christina Summers recommends called. Um, um, it's by Michael Thompson and I have not read this book, but it's called, it's a boy, your son's development from birth to age 18. And I think moms might enjoy reading this book. It sounds like the kind of book that would be really, really helpful for some of these developmental areas when you're just looking at your son thinking, why is he so distracted? Why doesn't he, um, care about these things? I've, I've I do this with a student I teach. He, he's, He's a fantastic student, but he is not a girl student. And, and um, when I'm working with a girl and a boy at the same time, you'll see it. The girl will just do the work perfectly. She'll, she'll elaborate. She'll have this long stuff. And um, even today, the, the boy handed me his paper, and it was cleverly done. It was so creative, and it was had jokes. Like, he had lots of little fun jokes to add into talking about Odysseus. Um, his story was about the pigs and the uh, the men um, being killed by Zeus's lightning bolt on the ship after after um, after they ate the sun god's pigs. Uh, I think it was the oh, and the cattle, the sun god's cattle. And he he puts a little thing on the thing. Um, this is too gruesome for me to tell you about. So here is a picture, and he draws a picture. Well, you know, to the girl that's cheating, but to the boy. That was an excellent, excellent, for me, that was an excellent narration. And um, another book, you know, when Raymond Moore started um, out in the early years of homeschooling, he talked about the, his whole thing at first wasn't go homeschool. His, homes, his whole thing was don't uh, better late than early. And the whole point of that was not to put our boys in school or girls, any, any kids were always 
to wait for readiness and wait for the developmental stages that happen naturally and, and, and are real. And when when a child waits for those things, and some some people say don't even start math until they're 10 because they're you're wasting a lot of time and they're not developmentally ready to, to handle math. I mean, not we're not talking about math they enjoy or counting or all the things that they do naturally and organically, but the actual study of math. And um, I think in homeschooling, we would be good to go back and remember that that it's better late than early. So many things and so many of these developmental problems would go away if we would wait until our children are ready for them and not try to push things on them too soon. So um, as you were talking, I I started thinking about motivation and and different ways that some boys are motivated. Um, What do you think of the idea of competition as a motivator? Well, in my house, I had, had no choice but to think of it as <laughs> because it was going to happen. So I'm not a big, uh, I'm not against competition. I mean, Charlotte Mason, I, I'm not sure that competition, um, she definitely, you know, was not about prizes or rewards for, um, you know, doing things. So I'm a little, and I agree with her on that. I don't think there should be, you know, if you read a hundred books, um, hey, you have a reward. You've read the a hundred books, and I think in the very early stages of reading, it's you can give the child. I always gave we always gave our child a reward the very first hundred books they ever read, um, starting with Bob books. You know, we can, we'd start a list, and when they got to a hundred, they got an award. We we gave them some kind of prize. You know, I forget what they were. But after that, that was it. We didn't, you know, say now your next hundred books, you're going to get an award and your next hundred. No, the reward was actually reading. But in those early, early years, sometimes it helps to um, when when you're just trying to get them to read um, when it's very, very difficult and they need a little extra motivation. But um, competition is just I think for boys, it's okay. I mean, it's part of being a boy in a lot of ways. And some girls are very competitive um, and and I don't really know how to stop it, to be honest. (laughs) What do you, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I think it, I mean, I think it depends on the kid and the, this, the, the context because it can get unhealthy certainly. Um, But I know that whether it was, you know, she mentioned a 13 year old boy and I know that when I was, age 13 up through high school um competition was was certainly a motivator and i don't think that it was motivator in, in, in an unhealthy way i think you i think young men naturally measure themselves up against other men and and other young men and i don't know that that's i don't think that's inherently um a bad thing i think but i, I do think it can get unhealthy like any other kind of motivator if your motivation is um candy and you that becomes an addiction or something you know like you yeah, they, when yeah. you care more about the results of the reward than you do the whole thing the whole process then that's a problem like think about it with sports like <clears throat> everybody who plays sports or most people who play sports play to win the game right yeah you're yeah. taught that way that's that's the goal of the game that's that's right that's what the purpose is um and the more serious you are about it and the more serious you know like the league or the team you play on the more serious that goal is going to be 
But if you only care about winning and literally don't care at all, like you don't enjoy the process of playing the game anymore, then it becomes unhealthy, and that so that becomes right. something different. Right. And the same thing can happen in academics. I think like if they only care about the fact that they're getting the A on the paper or that they're doing better than their brother or their friend or whatever, then it becomes unhealthy. But if they can, if the competition enables them to enjoy the whole process in a in a healthy way then I think that it can, that can go a long way, especially for, for young men who are trying to be independent and who are trying to um, kind of become their, become men themselves. And that's, at that age of 13, especially, that seems to be when that, that instinct is really starting to kick in, that desire to be kind of an independent uh, young man. Um, yeah, and I think that's where we have some problems with boys. Boys, a lot of, I always say there's two things that happen at that age, either the boy tries to not do as much as possible, kind of get, getting the one up on his mom in a way uh, <laughs> or he, or he gets frustrated because he's worried that he's not going to live up. He's not going to measure up. And then he, he becomes critical of the homeschool and because, and his mother, if he feels like he's not being challenged. So I do think boys like to be challenged. And I do think competition is one of the ways that they measure themselves just quite naturally, like you're saying. And of course it could go wrong. Um, it just like, you know, there, we have that thing called mean girls and where, where does that come from? You know, that's something gone wrong. Um, uh, boys definitely can take carry competition too far, but also they can learn from that too. Um, right. you know, they can learn the boundaries of competition and, yeah. uh, um, so I, yeah, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, it goes back to that whole, what is that? The James Daniels talked about the Thumos, um, the. The drive, the yeah. drive to prove who you are as a man. Yeah. yeah. And, and competition, also kind of inherent in competition, is the idea of winning and losing. And learning how to do both of those things well is important. Like learning how to fail at anything yeah. you do in life with grace or win with grace is important. My uh, my boys are playing t-ball. They're five yeah. and four, so they're playing t-ball for the first time. And um, the other day at practice uh, – or no, the other day we were practicing around at home. They wanted to practice, so they got out their little tee and – um, they got out their bats and stuff like that. And my youngest one, who's four, who he's a little bit more of the daydreamer, whereas the older one's much more serious about it, which probably has something to do with their ages. But yeah. the younger one, he would not hit it as far as he wanted to. And then he would just kind of like sit down and say, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore because yeah. I'm, I'm not doing yeah. well. And so on the one hand, I'm balancing like, well, you know, you're actually doing pretty well. So you're trying to encourage him. And then on the other hand, you're trying, I'm trying to say, you know, just because you're not doing well, doesn't mean you can stop trying, you know? So the balance with a four-year-old is how do you, where do you figure out that balance? That's a little tricky yeah. with a young kid. And the second child always has that in sports. Yeah, where yeah, yeah. Better than him. It's a little, unless every once in a while the, the younger boy is better. Or they'll catch up later on, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they definitely do. But, you know, he always has that, have that little chip on his shoulder. Like, you know, well, he's always doing better than me and everything. So. I, said, I said to him, son, Baseball is a game where you're going to fail 70% of the time. So let's get yeah. used to it. <laughs> yeah, 70. You're lucky. Yeah, you're yeah. pretty good if you're, if you're only yeah. failing 70%. But, yeah. Um, yeah. But it's interesting because even at a young age, you know, there's something like even they're four and five and they're constantly competing on everything, right? They're wrestling or they're trying to do something faster or the little one especially is like, look, I, I wrote these words and, you know you know, could you write these words or something like that? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, there's something yeah. in, in a, I don't, maybe it's just my kids. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm raising my kids to be overly competitive. I don't know. I'm not trying to do that on purpose. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think that's just their natural tendencies. Especially out. when they're that young, that close in age. 
And I think that's great. They're boys and they have each other and they learn, you know, in a loving environment, their brother loves them and, and they can um, compete a little bit. And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And maybe it's the benefit is for the second child who, who gets used to losing a little more than the first child does. (laughs) Well, and also the thing about it with, with brothers, I think with families in general, oftentimes you've talked about this, like, if Coulter and Jeremiah are doing something, they're going to compete against each other, even at this age, really hard. And that's only going to get, they're only going to compete more as they get older. But if somebody goes up and competes against them, they're also going to have their brothers back. And it's really interesting how that develops. Even Oh, yeah, yeah. Like your brothers yeah. probably would take nothing. Like if one of your brothers was getting pushed around or one of your kids was getting pushed around, then their brothers are probably at their back just as much as they would push them around if they were just at their house. Absolutely. And there, there has been, there have been stories where, um, you know, that, that one of my sons has said, well, I didn't think he was right about it, but you know, I had to defend him. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we yeah. kind of got a little off topic on this, but there's a yeah, lot of interesting did. stuff in there. Hey, yeah. I, I remembered those puzzles. So oh, what the they? puzzle brand is Crocodile Creek. And oh, the, I've never heard of that. Yeah, oh, the, awesome. The, the best ones for kids at this age, I, I bet they're really good up through like age eight. Uh, they're 200 piece uh, geography puzzles. You can find them on Amazon. They're $11 each, Eleven, approximately $11. They've got one that's a world map. There's one that is a USA like states map. Um, there's one that is an Africa map and one that is Europe. And they're all really cool. 11 12 bucks, something like that on Amazon. They're, they're on Amazon Prime. Um, okay. Yeah, so we've gotten my those are the four my kids have. We've gotten the you know, they were they're great Christmas present or a birthday present. Um and they're pretty affordable actually. And the two hundred piece puzzles are good. They're challenging for the four year old, um, or you know, the four to six year old and then the older kids can you know, I don't I don't I, I don't really know what puzzles eight year olds are doing because I haven't come to that that yet. But right, right. but Coulter loves puzzles. He got them faster, Jeremiah like Coulter was doing them really young, but he's just a natural puzzle maker. And then Jeremiah, he taught Jeremiah how to do them. And so now they'll do them together. They've done them. I bet they've done them 400 times, but they still love doing them every day. They do them multiple times and they learn so much. It's really, it's really fun to see. So check, check. Yeah, I think out. my granddaughters would actually like that. They love puzzles. So um, I'm they, definitely going to get that. They really like the little tubes they come in because they've got a handle on them and they're easy to store. They're not like the, you know how puzzle yeah. boxes fall oh, apart. Yeah. yeah. It's the, such the, a pain to keep puzzles. So they're not that, like that. Yeah. So, all right. Well, uh, any final thoughts on any of this? Uh, no, I just, uh, well, tomorrow is the, if, if this goes up on the Ides of March, then um, oh, everyone yeah. should be there. But also, we have two birthdays. So, happy birthday, James and Andrew, who neither one of them probably listened to this, but um, <laughs> anyway, I'm thinking of them. <laughs> well, happy birthday to them. Uh, and yeah, and yeah, ooh, the Ides of March, I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah. Watch your back. Yeah, beware. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for answering questions. To anybody who wants to send in questions, feel free to do that on the Facebook group, or you can email Cindy at cindy at ordo-amoris.com. Yeah, thanks to everybody who did that. I really appreciated everybody jumping in there yesterday. And if anybody is going to be coming to next week's Kindred event here in the Kindred conference here, uh, you'll get a chance to, to hear Cindy speak then. And what we're thinking about doing is posting one of those sessions that she's giving uh, here on the uh, Mason Jar podcast uh, sometime in April. So be on the lookout for that as well. Uh, and with that, uh, for Cindy Rollins, for all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Kern saying farewell here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>